0: Have you ever had one of those days? One of those days where you feel as though nothing is going to go your way. I'm seeing some looks like, yeah, I had one of those last week. You know, that just happens to all of us. Uh, you may be thinking about a day this past week, or there may be something in the past that just—it just stands out to you. Nothing went your way. Maybe not that day, maybe not that week, maybe not that month, maybe not that year, maybe not that decade, but this just happens to us. You just don't feel like things are going to ever go your way, that you're always going to be struggling. I automatically think back to Rodney Dangerfield, who made a whole career out of getting no respect, right? He didn't ever feel like things were going to go his way, and at some point, we, we all feel as though we aren't getting our fair shake, we all feel that it's, that nothing is ever going to go our way again. And these feelings can compound, and, and we feel as though this is just our way of life, and sometimes we feel as though we need to do something, that we need to do whatever it takes to get things to go our way. And as we arrive at our passage in Genesis this morning, we, we take a look into the family life of Jacob. We've Been looking at Jacob and we've been seeing the difficulties there and now we are getting into his family life and the theme seems to be continuing right things are just not going well we see how the promise of God is going to come to pass Jacob is going to have numerous offspring but in this story we find the interesting dynamics of Jacob's family Last week, we saw the deception that Laban perpetuated on Jacob, and now we see the fallout of the polygamy that that came out of all that deception. Now, this is the covenant family of God. They've been chosen by God, but sin and deception, it causes conflict. It causes conflict within their family, and for so many in the story, nothing seems to go right. Nothing is going their way. We have Rachel being barren. But she's loved, right? She at least has that going for her. Her sister Leah has several children, but she feels unloved by Jacob. The whole thing is a mess of epic proportions. But we will find that God is in fact God, and he is in control. And he will bring about his purposes, despite human sin, his plan. Will be accomplished and so as we arrive in this story and I've had a, I've had a few people I'm not going to lie I've had a few people come to me and say what are you going to do with this one they've read ahead and they're, they're saying boy what is going on with this story this is an interesting story that we have to dig into there's a lot going on and it's another big chunk of text once again and we're gonna be looking at it with the big picture. We find ourselves not looking at the small details once again in the text, but looking at the big picture and looking at how these events fit into the bigger story of redemption that we've been following through the entire book of Genesis. And so we immerse ourselves in this story today. We'll break it down once again into three parts of the story so that we can follow it a little more closely. The first thing that we see is that God opens Leah's womb but Rachel is barren. Now, this isn't, this isn't the first time that we've come across barrenness in the book of Genesis, is it? It was a big theme in the story of Abraham and Sarah, and it was an issue for, the 20, year, for, for 20 years in the life of Isaac and Rebekah. As we look at it today, we will find that it is significant that Leah is able to bear children for Jacob because she is the one who is hated, but the wife who is loved is unable to have children And this causes tensions to boil within their family. Secondly, we're gonna find that this difficulty and this struggle does not not lead Rachel to trust in God, to trust that he is sovereign and to follow his plan. Instead, she continually tries over and over to solve this problem on her own. A few weeks back, we, we were able to contrast the approach of Sarah and Abraham they were unable to have a child. We are able to contrast that. They're trying to do this on their own over and over with Isaac and Rebekah, who we read that they were barren, but what happened? Isaac prayed. He didn't try to cause everything to happen on his own. We were able to contrast that. And here we're going to see that Rachel decides to pursue children by her own power in the same way that Abraham and Sarah did, once again causing a mess. This leads to involving servants into the equation, and even trusting in local superstitions. Rachel isn't trusting God, she's trusting in her own power. And so finally, we're going to see that despite all this, God finally sees fit to open Rachel's womb. God hears her, and from her comes a son by the name of Joseph. Finally, the favored wife of Jacob has a child, and we're going to learn who that child is. It is Joseph, it is the one who will play a central role in protecting the covenant people of God. And so as we come to our first point, we're looking uh, at the verses that close out the chapter 29. In this passage, what we're doing here is we're looking at some pretty strong language as it starts out here. The Lord sees that Leah was hated, and so he opened her womb. Now, Leah is the definition of someone who doesn't seem to have much going her way, right? Just think about what we know of her from the story last week. In no uncertain terms, we read that she was unattractive. This was not only spelled out to us in the text either. It's told to us in the story. Just think about how that story goes. It tells us she's unattractive, but then the general flow of the story drives that point home because Jacob negotiates to work for the hand of Rachel for seven years, and in that seven years, Leah has no suitors. So the text told us that she was unattractive specifically, but it also tells us in the story, nobody's coming after Leah, it's been seven years. She still isn't married. Well then, the way the story points out, or the way the story plays out, it also points out this whole idea of her being unattractive even further, why? Because her own father comes to her and asks her to deceive Jacob. Put on this veil, go into the dark tent. You're not going to get a husband any other way, so let's do it this way. The whole story is just this whole mess, this whole thing with the bridal veil, the darkness of the tent, and, and likely the libations at the wedding ceremony. Jacob consummates marital union with Leah instead of Rachel. And when you stop to think about this It had to be awful for the psyche of Leah, right? How would would you feel? How how do you think she felt in the midst of all of this? Even your father feels you're unattractive to the point that you have to go along with a scheme to deceive your future husband. And after the text tells us how Jacob and Rachel came to be husband and wife, we read that Jacob loved Rachel, right? So this whole thing is even being amplified even more. Again, imagine the feelings of Leah here. Imagine the day-to-day life of being the unwanted, ugly wife of Jacob. It's unbelievably sad. But in this, we're reminded of something regarding the nature of God, aren't we? He loves the unloved. He cares for them. He accepts the ones the world rejects. And so we, so we see that God opens the womb of Leah. Leah. But in contrast, the the womb of Rachel is closed. That's not how we would expect the story to go. You would think that many children would come from the wife who was the one the main character was seeking out. He labored for her for 14 years to be able to marry her. And he was deceived to marry the other wife. you think that the story would go that she wouldn't have any children. The one that he truly wanted would have them all. But that's not what God sovereignly ordained to pass. And as we read through how this all goes down, look at the progression of the children being born and the names that Leah gives them. The firstborn's Reuben. And she says, now my husband will love me. Chances are we've all known a couple who had children to fix the relationship. How does that usually go? Not very well. Well, it doesn't go well here either. We find out that it doesn't work out for Leah. And she hopes, hey, if we have another child, maybe this will happen, so she does the same basic thing. Well, God saw that I'm hated, and so I have a son. Maybe this time Jacob will give me some love, some affection, have a third child, same thing. And then the fourth child comes, and we see that Judah is born. And she says something different here, and this is is interesting. Judah's name means praised. And so she says that this time she will praise the Lord. And it's an interesting progression, isn't it? Three times. She's looking for love to come from her husband because she has given him children, but, but finally, what does she do the fourth time? She decides to praise God. And the idea that seems to be conveyed to us here is that she is finally stopping to seek after the affection of Jacob and instead praises God for having another child. And because we know the rest of the story, it's interesting to see that this son, and his name mean praise. Why is that? It's Judah. He's the one through whom the covenant line will go. He is the one in the line to the Messiah. And so his, pray, his idea of his name isn't that she's hoping to bring joy to her husband or find love from her husband. Instead, the idea is, is that this one is to be praised, and you and I praise God for Judah too because he's the one through whom Jesus eventually will come. That's the idea here as we look at this. He is the one through whom the covenant will come. We don't know that yet, but we know the rest of the story. But what we see here, before we move on to our second point, is something really valuable. And we have to think about this again. God is using the unwanted. God's using the ugly to fulfill his purposes. He remembers the forgotten. What does he do? He builds up the weak. And we've seen this theme throughout Genesis, even in the life of Jacob, right? He was the second one to be born, but the covenant promise rested on him instead of on the one that the world would have that covenant promise rest on. God keeps his promise, and he accomplishes his purposes in the least likely way. And to the world, it may seem like foolishness, but God does his good will and his perfect will through the means that he sees fit, not through the human way we would do it, not through the strong, but through the weak, not through the beautiful, but through the unattractive. God is doing something amazing to rescue his people. And so as we see this, we move on to our second point, because Rachel is now trying to do something because she is feeling jealousy. Leah was jealous, and now now Rachel is jealous, Did anybody else think this would make a great soap opera plot? I mean, this is is some crazy stuff going on here. And if you don't know the story, even if you don't know the story, you had to see this coming. You had to see that this was what was going to happen. You knew that there would be jealousy in all of this. Even though Rachel is loved, she's the desired wife, you know she's feeling less than because she can't give Jacob a child. Those feelings would be true in our times, right? And likely in any cultural moment, this wife would feel this way. But but in this time that she lives, in her cultural moment, think about the importance of family for them, the importance of childbearing, and the feelings of contempt towards her sister that would have been so strong. And so we find that she goes after Jacob. and, And you can sort of see this conversation playing out in your mind's eye, can't you? I mean, she demands children. And he's like, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? i doing everything on my end. How am, how am I supposed to have this happen? I'm not God. Well, then the story takes a very familiar turn. We've, we've seen this before. Rachel isn't content with what God has ordained. So instead, she takes things into her own hands. And and this story is taking a turn similar to what occurred with Hagar and Sarah with the birth of Ishmael. We've already seen this drama that's happened because of this polygamy. And now we see Rachel is defying God's will and she's involving a servant into the mix just as Abraham and Isaac did with Hagar. And as we look at what Rachel says here, there's something cultural in this text that we might not understand. Kind of a neat little fact. If you look up here, it says that Bilhah will give birth on her behalf. Okay? That's a good translation. It's an attempt to translate the original Hebrew into something that we can understand in our language. But to understand the significance of this, we want to go back and and look at what it's actually saying in the original. Here, that that phrase, on, on her behalf, it literally means give birth on my knees, give birth on my knees. So in the ancient Near East, the knee was symbolic of parental care, and you can understand that you rear your children on your knee, right? And so there was this custom, and it's gonna seem really strange to our modern minds, like really strange, but there was this custom that if a concubine was delivering a children to be the child of another woman, she would deliver that child literally on their knees. And that signified that they were the child, that the the woman who the child was born on her knees was literally the one who was the parent. So this isn't just, hey, let's have more kids, so it sort of starts to balance out. This would have been seen as Rachel's child. And we can see that after this happens, after this child is born, Rachel feels vindicated. She feels like her, her actions are justified because she says, God has judged me. In other words, she is saying that God looked at her and saw she deserved a child, and so he gave me one. Well, this drives home the point that this this isn't just another child for Jacob to say, hey, I have more kids. In Rachel's mind, this takes away an emphasis from Leah because Rachel has literally gotten Jacob a child. It's her finally having one. And she must have liked it so much, she said, how back in again. She figures, hey, Leah's up to four. I'm going to amplify this by two. I'm starting to catch up. The numbers are starting to balance out. But once again, this causes the soap opera to have another chapter, doesn't it? Now, you've likely read this story before, but, but never dwelled on the details too much. Remember where we are heading. There are 12 tribes of Israel, So far, we're only halfway there. We have six children, six boys. So Leah sees what is happening. And my point is, we're only halfway there. There's a whole lot more drama coming down the road here as we finish out this story. Leah's seeing what's happening and that Rachel is closing in on her number of children. And so she's got to keep going. And and so she brings her servant into the mix. Now we find ourselves up to eight sons of Jacob because Zilpah gives birth to Gad and Asher, and this makes Leah happy. But again, the drama isn't done yet. We're only up to eight. Rachel isn't done trying to have a child of her own, and she's going to continue to take things into her own hands. And this is where the story gets even more hard for us to understand. We, We don't know what in the world this thing is with the mandrakes, but we're going to find that this is a local custom that's brought into the story. Reuben is out in the field and he finds mandrakes and he brought them to Leah. now mandrakes were considered to be uh, good for fertility They're, they were known as for lack of a better term love apples. you would have them and they would cause you to be fertile and so this is this is what Rachel is doing. She sees these mandrakes and thinks, aha, I've tried everything else. I'm going to try this local pagan custom. This is what we're going to do now, this pagan cultural thing. Instead of trusting God, then that he's sovereign over all of this, Rachel wants to give it another go on her own. But then this whole story gets really crazy. She's desiring to have a child of her own, but negotiates with Leah for them. By saying that Jacob would go into her tent That night Now isn't this all just completely Just out there Just unbelievable levels of drama Unbelievable levels of of Deception and I'm trying to do things on your own Everything going on in these stories And I think we find that God has a bit of a sense of humor Here doesn't he Rachel is going to use this pagan Local custom to have Children and instead Leah gets pregnant I mean Again, what a turn in the story. And notice what Leah thinks about the whole thing. She, she believes that God is blessing her with another child because she gave Jacob more sons through her servant, and now we have her having another child. Another way all of this is continuing to go, but we aren't done yet, are we? Leah conceives two more times. First, she has a sixth son, and she thinks that finally this is the key to Jacob honoring her. All you can say when you read that is, wow. If she was your friend, what would you say? Give it up. He's not, if, if after six boys, he's not honoring you and he's not loving you. This ain't gonna happen, honey. You know, she just can't give up the hope that through giving him sons she'll be loved and be honored by Jacob. And we, we also see that after all these sons being born, we finally have a daughter. And in a few chapters you know the book of Genesis, you know we're going to get to a very interesting story about that daughter. We're going to have some fun with that one. That, that's a wild one. But we'll come back to, to Dinah later. And so right now, we're at 10 sons of Jacob. This, is, this so far is us seeing that Leah has this desire to be loved, and the, and the striving Of Rachel having a child this has been the story so far and throughout the story in Genesis we've we've seen this continual struggle with infertility right it's a big deal will the covenant promise continue will the promise of God prevail will a child ever be born will the people of God trust God or will they go off on their own to try and fulfill this promise themselves and it really is an amazing story And what we see in all of it is that despite human failure, God is still going to accomplish his purposes. He does what he wills. And we see this as the passage closes and God sees fit to open the womb of Rachel. So look at the language that's used here. God God remembered Rachel. That's not only a beautiful statement, but we've seen this idea twice before in the book of Genesis. Remember back to the flood. And as the flood waters begin to recede, what do we read? God remembered Noah and the beasts and the livestock in the ark. And we also saw this same statement. After Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, there we read that that God destroyed the cities in the valley, but God remembered Abraham. And so Lot was rescued. And in the midst of Rachel's pain, and her desire for a child, God, in his timing, remembers Rachel. And it's important that we understand something here. The idea isn't that God has forgotten Rachel. He didn't forget about Noah on the ark. He didn't forget about Abraham and go, Oh, good, I'm glad I saved you from Sodom and Gomorrah and saved Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. God knew all along. The idea of remembering is not, Huh, how did I miss giving Rachel a child all these years? What was I thinking? Let's do that now. That's not the idea here. The idea is that God is faithful to his covenant. He is sovereign, and he is in control. And in his time, he accomplished what he set out to do. And notice what Rachel says here. After all this time, after all this striving, Rachel isn't giving credit to the mandrakes sitting in her tent. Instead, she is realizing that it is God who blessed her. She is trusting, she is relying on the Lord instead of taking matters into her own hands. Notice what she says here, the Lord has taken my reproach. Her barrenness was a reason for people to look down on her in their culture. It would have made her less of a woman, but what has God done? He took it away, and he blessed her with the gift of a son. And not just any son. This is Joseph. And we will see, as the book of Genesis continues, he will be instrumental in preserving the covenant people of God and saving them from famine and destruction. This is Joseph. God had a plan all along. He knew what he was doing. But in this birth, we see also that she has learned something. And we see this in the name of Joseph. The name name Joseph means, may he add. She says, may the Lord add to me another son. Now this kind of sounds greedy, doesn't it? Lady, you just got the son you've desired for so long, and now you're asking for a second? Come on, be content here. But that isn't the point. The idea is that, that she now trusts God. And she's hoping by faith that he will again bless her. She's done striving after this on her own. Instead, she is trusting God to accomplish his purposes through her. So this is an amazing passage filled with drama in the covenant family of Jacob. So much has happened, and so much of it is bad, but we see that Jacob has sons. And we see that the covenant line will continue. God is not only keeping that line intact, but we also see the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise, that promise that Jacob's offspring would be as numerous as the stars, because what's happening, God is blessing him with many children. So as we think about this passage, that's again kind of crazy, what do we learn from it? And what can we apply to our lives in the coming week? Now it would be really easy here to simply moralize this passage, right? To think that the big point is to avoid this negative behavior and then bad things won't happen to you but as we've seen that isn't the big point here right obviously we we should avoid the sins we see in this passage but that's not the big story the story running through all of this is the faithfulness of God he is accomplishing his will but our desires to take over his role and do things on our own gets in the way And when we do that, it causes conflict, it causes pain. But the story that we have seen today shows us that God is working even when it seems as though he isn't. And so our point of application today is to trust that God is working despite how we perceive things. God works in his timing. I'm guessing the easy path would have been for Rachel to conceive immediately. But we find that Rachel learned through the journey. This morning we had somebody share with us what he learned and what they learned through the, story, through the journey, right? How God does his timing and it's good. It's good. We've learned that in this story too. God is doing what God will do. We find that Rachel learned in the journey. She took unnecessary detours. She went off, off the road several times But what did God do? God had her arriving at the destination that he intentioned for her. He would bring Joseph, who would save the covenant people, through her. And as we look at the world around us, as we think about our individual lives, it often feels like God isn't in control, doesn't it? It often feels that way. But God is in control. He is, in fact, working all things together for good for those who love him. So may we faithfully look to God's word and to his law and desire to keep it that we might be faithful. Instead of trying to work things around through our effort, may we trust God and his timing and believe that we are saved by his grace and not by our own doing. Now we look at this story, and I've mentioned before, we see some repetition of some ideas. We've seen this reoccurring theme of barrenness, but the other thing that we find in this story is this continual struggling in the life of Jacob, right? He struggled with his brother in the womb. He struggled with Esau to take his birthright. He created more struggling when he stole the blessing. And now we find that the two main women in his life are struggling with one another. The wrestling never stops with Jacob, does it? And you know the story. He's going to be wrestling with God in a few chapters. Jacob is continually struggling in his life. It creates tension. We've been talking about all this tension that's going on in the life of Jacob. But here, what happens? It's resolved because God gave Rachel a son and took away her reproach. This struggle that Rachel's having, this struggle in the text is taken away by God. By God's grace, he has given her a son. So how does this apply to us? Well, by God's grace... The true struggle in our life has been taken away by the gift of a son. The gift of God's only begotten son who saves us from our sin and he gives us the gift of eternal life. In Christ, the only son of God, our reproach is taken away. And because we have that gift of God's son, we can face each day trusting that God is at work to fulfill his purposes for us. Regardless of the circumstances, we know that we are God's and He is ours. And so may God, through His Word and the power of the Spirit this week, give us a peace and give us a patience to trust Him in all these matters that are beyond our control. Because the gift of His Son shows His love for us. And so we can rest in His mercy as we live, love, and serve God in his world. Amen.